Chapter Seventeen, Part Two of The Riddle of the Universe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nathan Dickey. The Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel. Translated by Joseph McCabe. Chapter Seventeen, Section Three The Reformation. The history of civilization, which we are so fond of calling the history of the world, enters upon its third period with the reformation of the Christian Church, just as its second period begins with the founding of Christianity. With the reformation begins the new birth of fettered reason, the reawakening of science, which the iron hand of the Christian papacy had relentlessly crushed for twelve hundred years at the same time the spread of general education had already commenced owing to the invention of printing about the middle of the fifteenth century and towards its close several great events occurred especially the discovery of america in fourteen ninety two which prepared the way for the renaissance of science in company with that of art indeed certain very important advances were made in the knowledge of nature during the first half of the sixteenth century which shook the prevailing system to its very foundations such were the circumnavigation of the globe by magellan in fifteen twenty two which afforded empirical proof of its rotundity and the founding of the new system of the world by copernicus in fifteen forty three yet the thirty-first of october in the year fifteen seventeen the day on which martin luther nailed his ninety-five theses to the wooden door of wittenberg cathedral must be regarded as the commencement of a new epoch for on that day was forced the iron door of the prison in which the papal church had detained fettered reason for twelve hundred years the merits of the great reformer have been partly exaggerated partly underestimated it has been justly pointed out that luther like all the other reformers remained in manifold subjection to the deepest superstition thus he was throughout life a supporter of the rigid dogma of the verbal inspiration of the bible he zealously maintained the doctrines of the resurrection original sin predestination justification by faith etc he rejected as folly the great discovery of copernicus because in the bible quote, joshua bade the sun not the earth stand still unquote. he utterly failed to appreciate the great political revolutions of his time especially the profound and just agitation of the peasantry worse still was the fanatical calvin of geneva who had the talented spanish physician servetto burnt alive in fifteen fifty three because he rejected the absurd dogma of the trinity the fanatical true believers of the reformed church followed only too frequently in the blood-stained footsteps of their papal enemies as they do even in our own day deeds of unparalleled cruelty followed in the train of the reformation the massacre of st bartholomew and the persecution of the huguenots in france bloody heretic hunts in italy civil war in england and the thirty years war in germany yet in spite of these grave blemishes to the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries belongs the honor of once more opening a free path to the thoughtful mind and delivering reason from the oppressive yoke of the papacy 
thus only was made possible that great development of different tendencies in critical philosophy and of new paths in science which won for the subsequent eighteenth century the honorable title of the century of enlightenment section four the pseudo-christianity of the nineteenth century as the fourth and last stage in the history of christianity we oppose our nineteenth century to all its predecessors it is true that the enlightenment of preceding centuries had promoted critical thought in every direction and the rise of science itself had furnished powerful empirical weapons yet it seems to us that our progress along both lines has been quite phenomenal during the nineteenth century it has inaugurated an entirely new period in the history of the human mind characterized by the development of the monistic philosophy of nature at its very commencement the foundations were laid of a new anthropology by the comparative anatomy of cuvier and a new biology by the philosophie zoologique of lamarck the two great french scientists were quickly succeeded by two contemporary german scholars Bayer, the founder of the science of evolution and johannes muller the founder of comparative morphology and physiology a pupil of muller theodore schwann created the far-reaching cellular theory in eighteen thirty eight in conjunction with m schleiden lyell had already traced the evolution of the earth to natural causes and thus proved the application to our planet of the mechanical cosmogony which kant had sketched with so much insight in seventeen fifty five finally robert mayer and helmholtz established the principle of the conservation of energy in eighteen forty two the second complementary half of the great law of substance the first half of which the persistence of matter had been previously discovered by lavoisier forty years ago charles darwin crowned all these profound revelations of the intimate nature of the universe by his new theory of evolution the greatest natural philosophical achievement of our century what is the relation of modern christianity to this vast and unparalleled progress of science in the first place the deep gulf between its two great branches conservative romanism and progressive protestantism has naturally widened the ultramontane clergy and we must associate with them the orthodox evangelical alliance had naturally to offer a strenuous opposition to this rapid advance of the emancipated mind they continued unmoved in their rigid literal belief demanding the unconditional surrender of reason to dogma liberal protestantism on the other hand took refuge in a kind of monistic pantheism and sought a means of reconciling two contradictory principles it endeavored to combine the unavoidable recognition of the established laws of nature and the philosophic conclusions that followed from them with a purified form of religion in which scarcely anything remained of the distinctive teaching of faith there were many attempts at compromise to be found between the two extremes but the conviction rapidly spread that dogmatic christianity had lost every foundation and that only its valuable ethical contents should be saved for the new monistic religion of the twentieth century 
as however the existing external forms of the dominant christian religion remained unaltered and as in spite of a progressive political development they are more intimately than ever connected with the practical needs of the state there has arisen that widespread religious profession in educated spheres which we can only call pseudo-christianity at the bottom of it is a religious lie of the worst character the great dangers which attend this conflict between sincere conviction and the hypocritical profession of modern pseudo-christians are admirably described in max nordau's interesting work on the conventional lies of civilization in the midst of this obvious falseness of prevalent pseudo-christianity there is one favorable circumstance for the progress of a rational study of nature its most powerful and bitterest enemy the roman church threw off its mask of ostensible concern for higher mental development about the middle of the nineteenth century and declared a guerre d'autrance against independent science this happened in three important challenges to reason for the explicitness and resoluteness of which modern science and culture cannot but be grateful to the vigor of christ one in december eighteen fifty four the pope promulgated the dogma of the immaculate conception of mary two ten years afterwards in december eighteen sixty four the pope published in his famous encyclica an absolute condemnation of the whole of modern civilization and culture in the syllabus that accompanied it he enumerated and anathematized all the rational theses and philosophical principles which are regarded by modern science as lucid truths three finally six years afterwards on july eighteenth eighteen seventy the militant head of the church crowned his folly by claiming infallibility for himself and all his predecessors in the papal chair this triumph of the roman curia was communicated to the astonished world on the very day before that on which france declared war with prussia two months later the temporal power of the pope was taken from him in consequence of the war these three stupendous acts of the papacy were such obvious assaults on the reason of the nineteenth century that they gave rise from the very beginning to a most heated discussion even within orthodox catholic circles when the vatican council first approached the dogma of infallibility on july eighteenth eighteen seventy only three-fourths of the bishops declared in its favor four hundred fifty-one out of six hundred one assenting many other bishops who wished to keep clear of the perilous definition were absent from the council but the shrewd pontiff had calculated better than the timid discreet catholics even this extraordinary dogma was blindly accepted by the credulous and uneducated masses of the faithful the whole history of the papacy as it is substantiated by a thousand reliable sources and accessible documents appears to the impartial student as an unscrupulous tissue of lying and deceit a reckless pursuit of absolute mental despotism and secular power a frivolous contradiction of all the high moral precepts which true christianity enunciates charity and toleration truth and chastity poverty and self-denial 
when we judge the long series of popes and of the roman princes of the church from whom the pope is chosen by the standard of pure christian morality it is clear that the great majority of them were pitiful impostors many of them utterly worthless and vicious these well-known historical facts however do not prevent millions of educated catholics from admitting the infallibility which the pope has claimed for himself they do not prevent protestant princes from going to rome and doing reverence to the pontiff their most dangerous enemy they do not prevent the fate of the german people from being entrusted to-day to the hands of the servants and followers of this pious impostor in the reichstag thanks to the incredible political indolence and credulity of the nation the most interesting of the three great events by which the papacy has endeavored to maintain and strengthen its despotism in the nineteenth century is the publication of the encyclica and the syllabus in december eighteen sixty four in these remarkable documents all independent action was forbidden to reason and science and they were commanded to submit implicitly to faith that is to the decrees of the infallible pope the great excitement which followed this sublime piece of effrontery in educated and independent circles was in proportion to the stupendous contents of the encyclica draper has given us an excellent discussion of its educational and political significance in his history of the conflict between science and religion the dogma of the immaculate conception seems perhaps to be less audacious and significant than the encyclica and the dogma of the infallibility of the pope it is in fact one of those barren formulas on which the faculty of infallibility can be judiciously exercised it means that mary was exempted at her birth or conception from the law by which every child of adam incurs the guilt of original sin according to the teaching of the catholic church neither the law nor the exemption is ever likely to fall under critical examination with regard to the doctrine of the miraculous conception of christ by mary or the doctrine of the virgin birth comparative religion has shown that this myth has even less claim to originality than most of the other stories in the christian mythology it has been borrowed from older religions especially buddhism similar myths were widely circulated in india persia asia minor and greece several centuries before the birth of christ whenever a king's unwedded daughter or some other maid of high degree gave birth to a child the father was always pronounced to be a god or a demigod in the christian case it was the holy ghost the special endowments of mind or body which often distinguished these love children above ordinary offspring were thus partly explained by heredity distinguished sons of god of this kind were held in high esteem both in antiquity and during the middle ages while the moral code of modern civilization reproaches them with their want of honor of parentage this applies even more forcibly to daughters of god though the poor maidens are just as little to blame for their want of a father for the rest every one who is familiar with the beautiful mythology of classical antiquity knows that these sons and daughters of the greek and roman gods often approached nearest to the highest ideal of humanity recollect the large legitimate family 
and the still more numerous illegitimate offspring of zeus to return to the particular question of the impregnation of the virgin mary by the holy ghost we are referred to the gospels for testimony to the fact the only two evangelists who speak of it matthew and luke relate in harmony that the jewish maiden mary was betrothed to the carpenter joseph but became pregnant without his cooperation and indeed quote, by the holy ghost unquote. as we have already related the four canonical gospels which are regarded as the only genuine ones by the christian church and adopted as the foundation of faith were deliberately chosen from a much larger number of gospels the details of which contradict each other sometimes just as freely as the assertions of the four the fathers of the church enumerate a large number of these spurious or apocryphal gospels some of them are written both in greek and latin for instance the gospel of james of thomas of nicodemus and so forth the details which these apocryphal gospels give of the life of christ especially with regard to his birth and childhood have just as much or on the whole just as little claim to historical validity as the four canonical gospels they were generally rejected on the ground of the extravagance of their legends and miracles but in some cases their date is as early as that of the canonical gospels as we have them to-day when therefore we find in one of them the gospel of nicodemus which is assigned by some scholars to the second century a statement that jesus was accused by the jews of being quote, begotten in sin unquote, a statement that is somewhat enlarged by the second century platonist writer celsus as indicated by origen contra celsum section one line thirty two into the charge that quote, the mother of jesus was divorced by the carpenter who had married her because she was convicted of adultery and had borne a child to a certain soldier named pantheris unquote. we naturally connect it with the later jewish story in the sefer toldoth jeshua traces of which exist from about the year eight hundred of christ being the issue of an illicit union of mary and a greek officer in the roman army it has long been an argument of theologians for the supernatural character of christ that the ideal depicted in the gospels is not hebraic it is as a matter of fact certainly greek in many respects and so the theory of a greek parentage might seem to have some plausibility in a matter where reliable documentary evidence is wholly wanting but critics are generally agreed in rejecting the pantheris or pandera version of christ's fatherhood the present study of the gospels even by christian scholars amply allows for greek elements since it admits that we cannot trace the gospel narratives as we have them to-day until long after the dispersal of the jews through the greek world on the other hand the jews cannot be regarded as ideal or disinterested witnesses to the life and person of christ the opposition of the orthodox to the christianizing jews would naturally lead to the growth of such unflattering legends biblical scholars prefer to award the paternity of christ to the carpenter joseph some of the early christian writers observe that this belief is shared by many christians in their day mark 
john and paul know nothing of a miraculous theory of christ's birth and the passages in matthew and luke can be proved as most of the modern german theologians admit to have a late origin once the supernatural theory of christ's origin is abandoned as it is being rapidly abandoned in scholarly circles in the churches it is perhaps not a matter of great importance to discover the human father of the founder of christianity it is interesting to see the different reception that the love story of miriam has met with at the hands of the four great christian nations of civilized europe the stern morality of the teutonic races entirely repudiated it the righteous german and the prudish briton preferred to believe blindly in the impossible thesis of a conception quote, by the holy ghost unquote. it is well known that this strenuous and carefully paraded prudery of the higher classes especially in england is by no means reflected in the true condition of sexual morality in high quarters the revelations which the pall mall gazette for instance made on the subject twelve years ago vividly recalled the condition of babylon the romantic races which ridicule this prudery and take sexual relations less seriously find mary's romance attractive enough the special cult which our lady enjoys in france and italy is often associated with this love story with curious naivete thus for example paul de regula dr desjardins author of jesus of nazareth considered from a scientific historical and social standpoint eighteen ninety four finds precisely in the illegitimate birth of christ a special quote, title to the halo that irradiates his noble form unquote. it seems to me necessary to enter fully into this important question of the origin of christ in the sense of impartial historical science because the church militant itself lays great emphasis on it and because it regards the miraculous structure which has been founded on it as one of its strongest weapons against modern thought the high ethical value of pure primitive christianity and the ennobling influence of this religion of love on the history of civilization are quite independent of those mythical dogmas the so-called revelations on which these myths are based are incompatible with the firmest results of modern science End of chapter seventeen part two recording by nathan dickey ashland oregon journeymanheretic.blogspot.com